Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today is Saturday, April 1st, 2017. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. And of course it says in Psalm 14, and I think again in Psalm 53 or 55 or something like that, that the fool says in his heart that there is, go- there is no God. The bigger fool thinks that God is a Jew. Tonight we will present part 28 of our series, The Protocols of Satan. This is part 2 of the Nazis and the Protocols. This is the conclusion to our introduction. In the last segment of these presentations of The Protocols of Satan, we began to present a translation of the introduction to the 1938 edition of the official National Socialist publication of the protocols of the the so-called, I should say, because they're not really learned elders, they're just a bunch of sly old snakes, the protocols of the so-called learned elders of Zeon, translated by Calvin College professor Randall Bitwork. I'm not certain how much Mr. Bitwork would like me employing his material and creating this critical review of it. He is not very sympathetic to the National Socialist cause. In part, we also hope that this serves as a critical review of Mr. Bitwork's work to some point and his own attitude towards the, both the protocols, which he believes are a forgery, and national socialism, to which he is generally ambivalent. That first part of this introduction, which we presented here last week, served our purposes to help illustrate the truth behind the assertion by the authors of the Protocols, which we encountered in Protocol 3, where they boasted that we have included in constitutions rights which for the people are fictitious and not actual rights. All the so-called rights of the people can exist only in the abstract and can never be realized in practice. In future segments of these presentations, we hope to discuss the illusion of constitutional rights in this aspect of which the Protocols boast, and we hope to discuss it in greater depth. Discussing this boast of the Protocols, from this introduction to the German publication, we found that the Jews were indeed heavily involved in the writing of the several constitutions of the German Reich of the 19th century and also of the constitution of the Weimar Republic of the early 20th century. So in Germany at least, it is certainly demonstrated that the Jews were indeed in a position that demonstrates that the boasting of the protocols certainly does have substance. In the near future, we hope to show that this is also true in other countries as well. However, since we began to present this introduction to the 1938 edition of the official National Socialist publication of the Protocols last week, now we shall present the balance of it, even though most of the material it discusses 
is related to later portions of the protocols themselves. So here we began at the point where we had left off last week, and we will repeat one short paragraph where the subject of discussion was Jewish press control, something that we have already spoken of at great length in this series. I think in parts 10, 11, 12, 13. And picking up with our source, the extent to which the source of the international press system was Judified, even during the pre-war period, is proven by looking at the three leading world press agencies. All three were founded by Jews, and the two that survive today are still fully Judified. The French agency Havas was founded by the Jew, Charles Louis Havas, the English Reuters by Josephat Beer, the son of a rabbi who later added the name Reuter, while the now defunct Wolf Telegraph Agency in Germany was the work of the Jew Bernhard Wolf. <coughs> we have already discussed these three news agencies and the Jews who founded them at length in part 13 of our presentation of the Protocols of Satan. That the Reuters and Wolf news agencies were founded by Jews is absolutely certain. But while at that time we could not determine if Charles Havas was a Jew, we did determine that his, that this former banker and merchant turned news agent was born into a banking family that made its riches as estate managers for the Norman nobility, while they themselves were not nobles nor Normans. So we would accept the National Socialist assertion that Havas was also a Jew without reservation. The news agency he founded is still a major media presence in France to this very day. Before we present the next paragraph, we must explain that our translator has inserted exclamation points in parentheses at certain points in this text. If he did not insert them, we cannot imagine why they are there, because our copy comes straight from the translator's own website. But why they are there, he does not explain. There were three of these in the text we presented in the segment from last week, and we ignored two of them. The one we discussed was an obvious error in the text from our viewpoint, where it read Europe rather than Germany. So we assume the translator believes his mark points out errors wherever they appear. There is only one such mark in this portion of the text, in this next paragraph where a reference is made to an editorial article which is said to have appeared in the Jewish publication Der Jude, or The Jew. Yet we have no real reason to dispute the reference unless our translator has read every copy of Der Jude for over two years and could not find it. Or unless, since he only seems to be doubting the timing of the remarks, he found it in a later edition. He just doesn't inform us why he feels this is a mistake. Der Jude, which means the Jew, was a Zionist monthly magazine founded by the Jews Martin Buber and Salman Schocken, or perhaps it should have been Schlocken, and published in Germany from 1916 to 1928. 
Boober was the publisher, and of course the editors were all Jews. Max Mayer, Mac Mayer Prager, Gustav Krojanker, Ernest Simon, and Sigmund, Sigmund Kasnelson. Of these, the most notable, or the most notorious, may have been Schocken, who moved to the United States in 1935. The same year he bought the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, where his eldest son remained publisher until 1990, and which is still under Schocken family control today. Book publishing ventures by Schocken are also still operating today. However, the other devils associated with Der Jude were also notable Zionists, except perhaps for Buber, who had later turned against Zionism, at least on the surface, and most of them involved in publishing and media until after the Second World War. So with this background, we continue. And our authors say that the extent to which Jewry used the power of the press to serve Jewish interests is clear from an editorial in the magazine Der Jude, which was published before the end of the war. And after that word before, our translator has his little exclamation point in parentheses. It threatened the German government with Jewish world power. And they quote it, as saying that we have a leading role in the international press, in international finance, and in economic life. We influence public opinion. We are an important factor in establishing international attitudes. And, something very important, we are represented everywhere. We are a truly unique international people, spread over every land, active in every aspect of politics, and of immeasurable value to anyone who wishes to be our ally. Citing that, they cited volume 3, dated for 1918 and 19, in page 194 of Der Jude. The shooting war came to a halt with the armistice of November 1918, and since the author of the introduction cited an issue from Volume 3 of the publication dated 1918-1919, it is not necessarily wrong in its perspective since the Treaty of Versailles, which officially ended the war, was not until June of 1919. The armistice only ended the shooting, but not the war itself. This is a minor point, but we feel that it shows just how quickly... Our biased author, our biased translator, I'm sorry, desires to point out supposed errors in National Socialist publications. He's quite petty, I believe. The factual truth of this boast of the Jews, who published Der Jude, is substantiated by another article about Jews, which was written by Jews and published in Chambers Encyclopedia, which we discussed in Part 12 of these Protocols of Satan. There we had cited Chambers Encyclopedia, 19, published in 1901, in Volume 6, on page 332, under the article titled, Jews, where it says, Another extraordinary and well-authenticated fact 
is that the European press, no less than European finance, is under Jewish control. Although it goes on to say that the effect of this control has been greatly exaggerated. As we had already discussed, the statement was made in a context which was so flattering to the Jews that the encyclopedia could not have been criticized for it, especially since the article in which it appeared was written by Jews. The actual scope of Jewish influence on society described by the full article, which we will probably publish one day, is even far more foreboding than the statement describing media control. Publish it in text anyway. We have a link to the PDF, both in the twelfth part of these Protocols of Satan, where we originally discussed this article, and here this evening, as we publish these notes at Christagenia. Continuing with our source, our introduction to the Protocols, published by the National Socialists, Closely bound to the press was Jewish influence on Germany's intellectual and cultural life. Jewry had no limits here during the post-war period, able to fully realize the thesis in the protocols about subversive activity in this field. And they quote from Protocol 9, which states, We have stupefied, misled, and corrupted non-Jewish youth. We based their education on false principles and doctrines, whose falsity we knew well, but which we nonetheless used. And it should be pretty much common knowledge, and I'm sure it's not, but it should be, that free public education is a doctrine of the Communist Manifesto. It's one of the planks of the Communist Manifesto of Karl Marx. It really means enforced public indoctrination. And most of our listeners, I'm sure, are well aware of that. But without question, in the late 18th and early 19th century, just about every nation in Europe accepted this idea of free public education and and founded public grade schools, high schools, as, as well as the universities they, that they had previously funded, or at least a lot of them in many cases had, but grade schools and high schools publicly funded, and legislation that enforced all children to go and attend these schools if they didn't attend a corresponding private school, which would in many cases be at great cost. So... That alone shows the Jewish and and the Marxist hand in all of the Western so-called democracies over a hundred years ago, long before the Bolshevik Revolution. The reader cannot be spared the results of this, evidenced in the defense of immoral and obscene literature by writers whom the Jews consider great and important members of their race. They fought the law against immoral and obscene literature, claiming that it was necessary to the intellectual life of the nation, and particularly for the education of the youth. They praised it accordingly. The Berliner Tageblatt, 
at the time a purely Jewish newspaper proclaimed by the Jews to be Germany's leading international newspaper wrote the story following about the battle over the law which ultimately passed despite Jewish influence. Obscenity is absolutely necessary for the youth. Maiden aunts argue the fantasy that young boys and girls are corrupted by obscene literature. That's Jewish projection. People that argue fantasies about the corruption by obscene literature. Jewish projection would insist that those people themselves are corrupt, which is slander. That's why Jews are the devil. That's why the word devil is from the Greek word diabolus, which means false accuser. That's what the Jews do. If you are against homosexuality, you're some kind of closet, latent homosexual. That's what the Jews do. They slander you with the things that you stand against when you stand for anything moral. They do it all the time. The trick is as old as the Garden of Eden. Obscenity is absolutely necessary for the youth. Maiden aunts argued the fantasy that young boys and girls are corrupted by obscene literature. In reality, however, the fantasies of young people going through puberty are rather obscene, and these fantasies need obscene literature to redirect their arousal in harmless ways. This is Freudian psychobabble to get people to give their kids porn. If one takes obscene literature away from the youth, the number of youthful sex crimes would increase tremendously, maybe in a neighborhood full of niggers. Either way, it wouldn't matter to them. The outlet would be closed. The inner pressure would have destructive effects. Obscene literature means as much, even more to the youth, than dirty jokes to adults. So, the Jews are saying that dirty jokes have a high value among adults that might be true of Jewish adults. What would become of all the fine citizens, gentlemen, and workers who exchange dirty jokes at pubs, bowling clubs, or gentlemen's evenings if one closed off that outlet? What filthiness would they do if they could no longer talk about filthiness? Wow. Here the Berliner Zeitung edition of December 1st, 1926 was cited. This paper was closed during the Second World War. Probably far too late, obviously. And the modern Berliner Zeitung was founded in 1953. The original paper, founded in 1877, was promptly purchased in 1878 by the Jew Leopold Ulstein. We hope to have a discussion, a discussion on the Jewish promotion of obscenity in America as we reach the appropriate point in our presentation of the protocols. For now it may suffice to say that in the formative years of the Reformation, the humanists in Germany were also promoting obscenity among the youth, as we have discussed at length in our earlier series of presentations titled Martin Luther in Life and Death, which, I pray, we have not yet completed, that many of those humanists promoting obscenities among the youth were not German. 
they had truly despised all things German, but they had hid themselves behind Latin names to write their books and pamphlets. Continuing with our source, the Jews used every means to oppose this law, the law that the Berliner Zeitung had just written that disgusting article against. The Jew Willy Haas's Literarich Welt, I think that means literary world, which otherwise had no interest in Germandom across our borders, saw Germans abroad as a way around the law. The Jew Heinrich Eduard Jacob proposed the following plan, quoting Literary World, the Index Laborum Prohibitorum, this law will establish is valid only for the territory of the Reich. What is the sense of establishing censorship for 60 million German readers when there are 90 million of them? The law does not encompass the purely German population of Austria, Switzerland, or northern Bohemia. It does not encompass the Baltic Germans, those in Alsace or Luxembourg, Danzig, or Upper Silesia. The law is so weak that, to give only a few examples, energetic action by three foreign German newspapers, the New Free Press in Vienna, the New Zürcher Zeitung, and the Prager Tageblatt, could render it lame the Prager Tagoblad being in Czechoslovakia or in Bohemia, as it's called here. Will these newspapers do anything? Be assured they will. They will do it because of their German past, because of their liberal tradition, and for another reason, a reason which is not revealed to us, I gather. The owner and editor of the Austrian New Free Press in 1926 was a Hungarian Jew named Marz Benedict. The Swiss New Zürcher Zeitung was founded in 1780 by the Swiss painter and poet Solomon Gessner. We would dispute whether or not he was actually Swiss, and we could not independently determine early 20th century ownership of the paper. The information is sparse. We could dig deeper, having more time. The New Zürcher Zeitung is still published today. The Czech Prager Tageblatt boasts a long line of Jewish writers and editors as its important contributors during this same period, notable among whom were Max Broad, Egon Erwin Kish, Alfred Polgar, Alexander Rotorota, and Joseph Roth. But ownership of the paper at this time is also unclear. I list these names because there will be links in the text to Wikipedia articles on each of these men, which basically admit that they are Jews, and connect them to the Czech Prager Tageblatt. So this is pretty much free and open information, especially if Wikipedia admits it. Today we must grant, continuing with our source, today we must grant that these German-language Jewish newspapers abroad, meaning in Vienna, in Zurich, Switzerland, and in Bohemia, in Prague, 
did their duty under Jacob's plan, the Jew who is just cited, Heinrich Edward Jacob, in an exemplary way. So too did the Jewish writer, and they put writer in quotes as if they're being sarcastic, and I imagine they probably should be. So too did the Jewish writer Franz Wurzel, who wrote in the literary world of November 26, 1926, that he became a member of the Academy of Literature only so that he could use its official authority to fight this dreadful law against obscenity and immorality with more force than he otherwise would have. Clear evidence of the battle, of the satanic battle opposing the protection of German youth from obscenity and trashy literature, from moral corruption and moral destruction, is clear from the behavior of the Jews in Bern and all of their racial comrades in the battle against the protocols of the elders of Zion. They misused the law on movie theaters and measures against immoral literature against a publication that in no way injured moral sensibilities, even if it said something painful for the Jews. This will make clear to any reasonable person the duplicity and dishonesty of Jewry. They used every means to morally corrupt non-Jewish youth during the post-war period by fighting the law against trashy and obscene literature. After Jewish world power had been shaken by the National Socialist Revolution, however, a similar law in the canton of Bern was good enough to prevent the unmasking of Jewish world power. And in other words, the Jews disdain obscenity laws when they successfully prevent the propagation of Jewish perversion, but use them to their advantage where those laws can be used to help them sustain the spread of their perversions. And to continue with our source, we do not here need to discuss in detail the judification of theatrical life, particularly the judification of the Berlin stage. A report from one of the few newspapers from that time that dared to oppose the evil spirit of the almost entirely Jewish theater directors had this to say about the theater calendar at the time. It gives us a picture of the Jewish stamp on the holidays of the period, a mockery of everything German and Christian that had not been possible up to that time. And this is quoting a 1920 article published in Deutsch Volkstum. The Lessing Theater is producing Shaw, and they have a parenthetical remark. We think highly of Shaw, but for Christmas? The Donkeys at the Kunstler Theater dug up Sardau, the Deutsch Theater, for Christmas is giving us Beer Hoffman's Zionist play, Jacob's Traum, meaning Jacob's Dream, after a biblical story, which is not at all Jewish. The Kammerspiel is doing Wedekind's Fuhlingswachen in the afternoon. Now, Fuhlingswachen means spring awakening. And according to Wikipedia, 
The play criticizes, and, and I'm using Wikipedia as a source here because it's commonly available, and because it's candid about all of the sources that I had looked up this afternoon. According to Wikipedia, the play criticizes the sexually oppressive culture of 19th century Germany and offers a vivid dramatization of the erotic fantasies that it breeds. The play's subject was sexuality and puberty among German schoolchildren. Wedekind was a pervert who once contracted syphilis from prostitutes, and he's writing plays of this caliber, and they are being played in major theaters in Berlin in the afternoon. This play is said to have contained scenes of homoeroticism, quoting Wikipedia again, implied group male masturbation, actual male masturbation, sadomasochism between a teenage boy and girl, rape and suicide, as well as references to abortion. We could not quickly find descriptions of all of Wedekind's other plays listed here, but they are said to have covered similar themes and included such things as lesbianism and, as we shall see shortly, even transsexuality. Transsexuality is a topic being discussed and promoted in literature and theater by Jews in 1920s Germany. Our source continues. In the evening, Moore Strindberg, Das Klein Theater is doing Das Unibert Weeb by the Kitschy Pole, Zapalska, now Gabriela Zapalska, evidently Prostitution and venereal disease were among her favorite topics, but I could not get any information on this particular play. To improve the attendance, the actresses are half-naked in the Gabriella Zapolska play. Das Klein Schauspielhaus is doing Strindberg, so these are two different theaters. Now, one play by August Strindberg actually got him tried for blasphemy in Sweden, of all places. I'm not... He, he was called a naturalist, which is another pervert. Naturalist seems to be a euphemism used of 1900s, or, or I'm sorry, 19th century playwrights for their perversions. They seem to have called themselves naturalists. They want everybody naked and acting like dogs. That's my opinion. Das Theater under Königstrass, or Königgratzstrass, I'm sorry, is performing, of all things, Wedekind's Schloss Wetterstein. The Residence Theater was at least honestly unashamed. It celebrated Christmas with the Bordello drama, Ebchen Humricht. Long live the theater director who earns money following the principles of the Bordello's Madame. And I don't... The, the joke escapes me. The sarcasm escapes me. I'm sorry. The Tribune is not only presenting Wedekind's Francisca, but more importantly has the theatrical whore, Wojan or Woyan, stark naked on stage behind a thin veil. Now Francisca was a transsexual fantasy in which the 
title character sells her soul to the devil so that she could live life as a man. Wouldn't it be a surprise to see the Jews promoting that a hundred years ago? And our source concludes, Is it hateful for us to say in combating this witch's Sabbath during the Christmas season that Jewish theater directors are responsible for these monstrosities? And that is quoting a newspaper article, Deutsches Volksnamen, published in 1920. And our source continues and says that in the reviews, finishing the quote from the newspaper, in the reviews produced exclusively by Jews during the post-war period, the destruction of family life and above all marriage reached its epitome. We content ourselves here with an overview of the titles of some of these Jewish products. Undress, On and Off, Beautiful and Chic, Damn, A Thousand Women, A Thousand Naked Women, Strictly Forbidden, The Sins of the World, Sinful and Sweet, and we add the text of the poster for the James Klein Review, Undress, and it's advertising this theatrical presentation. James Klein's powerful new review show, Undress, An Evening Without Morality, in 30 scenes, with 60 prize-winning nude models, The Hunt for Beautiful Women, Experience with a 15-year-old, The Huge Heavenly Bed, The Woman with a Whip, Sunshine and Magic, Living Bells and Living Flowers, and 20 more scenes with original Paris Review costumes. And for that, they charged four and a half marks for the good seats and three and a half for the balcony. And we have to take note that this is at a time right after the Versailles Peace Pact when inflation was rampant in Germany. And people were thrown onto the streets. So women were being basically forced economically, or starve, they're being basically forced economically, women and children, to participate in this Jewish lust fest that's going on in Berlin at this time. So that should add to the impact that this filth has on us, that the Jews basically had had been able to maneuver Germany into a position to accept this trash as they beat them over the head with it every day in their newspapers, that this was good, that this was healthy, that children needed this stuff. I can't wait for the Holocaust. Our source continues. How much Jewry not only tried to scuttle the law against immoral literature and obscenity, but was also actively involved in pornographic films of the worst sort, is shown by the titles of a selection of films of Jewish origin. And they're only giving us another list of titles. How Pure and Beautiful Women Fall. That's a script running since Genesis chapter 3. 
the right of free love, that's something the Jews have been pushing for thousands of years, even in the pagan Baal temples of Mesopotamia and the Levant, Lou, the coquette, I can't pronounce that, coquette, I guess, C-O-Q-U-E-T-T-E, sinful blood, in the clutches of sin, the daughter of the prostitute, those who sell themselves, and in parentheses, those who live from love, the courage to sin. Paragraph 175, different than the others, and that was the paragraph 175, is a reference to the law against obscenity. Paragraph 218, abortion, and that's one of the laws against abortion that the Jews tried to get rid of in Germany. And paragraph 182, under the age of consent. So they're putting the laws right in their films, and they're campaigning against the the laws right in their films as they display their trash. And finally, Lily's path to prostitution. As we said, the economy was, because of the post-war conditions, so bad that it lured many young women and even children, male and female, into prostitution in the Weimar era. And, of course, the Jews thrived on both. Closely bound to the propaganda for pimps and prostitution, which was pressed by the Jews on Germans with a persistence that makes it clear that it was no accident. Closely bound to that is Jewish propaganda for race mixing, promoted to our people through fashion and the press. An essay by the Jew, Claire Gohl, illustrates the ways the Jews sought to realize their slogan of the equality of all who have a human face, or at least a barely human face. It concerned the niggerfication of Europe, which in a way revealed the general staff plan of the Jews, showing how they used fashion to advance their instinctual goal of corrupting their host people. Think Heidi Klum or something. Quoting the Jewish Claire Dahl. In New York, the Negroes have their hair straightened. The whites want curls. Negro hair. And of course that became quite popular in the 1970s when men started getting perms. And that way Jews could blend right in. That goes well with dark colored skin. The new fashion of brown skin. When one gets to the point where the skin of Negroes can be whitened, racial differences will happily disappear. This will benefit and bless old-fashioned-looking white humanity. So we see that there were Barbara Specters around in Germany a hundred years ago. Well, of course there were. Of course, we see this same Jewish plot build to a fulfilling crescendo across Europe and America today. It's going to end with the Holocaust. Continuing with our source, furthermore, and also an explanation as to why the debasement of the host people is the prerequisite for Jewish rule, consider the opinion of the Jew, Kurt Munzer, taken from his book, The Way to Zion, Der Weg nach Zion. We Jews are not the only ones debased and at the end of a worn-out culture 
that has been sucked dry. All the races of Europe have corrupted their blood as we have. Perhaps we infected their blood. Today everything is Judified. Imagine if he could see it now. This was a hundred years ago. Our essence is in every living thing. Our spirit rules the world. We are the masters. What has power today is our intellectual child. We can no longer be driven out. We have overcome the races, corrupted them, broken their strength. Everything is worn out, rotten, and decayed because of our culture. Our spirit can no longer be exterminated. And that was published in 1910, The Way to Zeon. Our source comments and says that such Jewish subversive activity that is particularly directed towards the non-Jewish youth proves clearly that the Jews have acted consistently with the cited passage from the protocols. Along these lines, we may not forget the propaganda for pacifism that Jews such as Kurt Tukalski, Elias Peter Panter, Theobald Tiger, Ignaz Robel, and Caspar Hauser, this Jew had a host of names, used throughout history to break the will of the people to defend itself. The following citations from Tukalski's pamphlets reveal the aggressive and combative tone that he used to attempt to win over the always active and battle-ready German youth to his pacifism. Although he was never at the front, he had these clear words to say about his conduct during the World War. And quoting Tukalski, I shirked the war for three and a half years, however I could, and I regret that I did not have the courage to say no and refuse military service like the great Karl Liebknecht. I am ashamed of that. I did what many others did, using every way I could find to avoid being shot at and having to shoot. He built his own treasonous ideology, citing another one of his books. What judges call treason does not bother us, and what they call high treason is for us not dishonorable. We are left cold by what they call perjury, destruction of documents, and breach of peace. And our source says that if that were not enough, he calls for direct acts of treason. For us pacifists, if required to preserve the peace of Europe, if demanded by our consciences, and I am fully aware of what I am saying, there is no German military secret that I would not give to a foreign power if it seemed necessary to preserve peace. We are traitors, Tukalski says, but we betray a state that we renounce in favor of a land that we love, for peace and for our real fatherland, Europe. And we must state that a Jew cannot really commit treason, since their only true allegiance can only be to themselves. Jews can commit espionage, but never treason. Unsuspecting and altruistic whites, projecting our values onto the Jew, may consider Jews to be treasonous, but that is only because they are naive enough to project their own values onto Jews, who are not so stupid. Continuing with our source... The Jew laughs when whites project their values onto Jews. The devil just laughs. Hand in hand, with that go filthy insults against German soldiers who fought at the front 
and the constantly repeated charge that Germany was the only one guilty for world war. Tukowski wrote in Freeheit about Hindenburg in 1922, citing Tukowski again, we reject the head of the Supreme Command of the Army, this German underestimation commission. We reject a completely unsuitable person who still today has not understood what happened under his orders. And we greet with regret the shame the Belgian widows and orphans whose husbands and fathers were murdered back then. Tukowski was not the only Jew who thought that way, as is proven by an essay by the Viennese Jew Alfred Polgar in the Berliner Tageblatt of 1922. He wrote this about the Germans of 1914. Cattle are cattle. Animals about to be slaughtered have no idea what is coming. The proof of that was brought en masse when the war began. They cheered in the streets, heads high, those that would fall to the axe. And of course that is basically straight from the Jewish Talmud. Our source continues and says that for 15 years, the Jews in Germany followed the protocols of the elders of Zion in a striking way, working to stifle the will of German youth to fight. They did this not only in magazines and pamphlets, but also in university lecture halls. Think about how our universities are destroyed in this manner today. On the 1st of April, 1933, there was a total of 1,066 Jewish professors at German universities. They spread the poison of pacifism and a contempt for German heroism of people like Gumbel's Lessings, and their comrades. The reader must realize that such treasonous statements in word and image were not prohibited because the governmental press office in Prussia was in the hands of the Jews. In Prussia in 1930, the press was under the patronage of the Jewish State Secretary, Dr. Weissman, with his subordinate Superior Counselor Goslar as Press Secretary for the Prussian government, and Senior Counselor Dr. Pfeiffer as his deputy, Counselor Dr. Weichmann as Press Secretary in the Prussian Department of State, Dr. Hirschfeld as Press Secretary in the Prussian Interior Ministry. The same was true for the Reich Federation of the Press, headed by the Jew George Bernhard. The same was true in the Protective Federation for German Writers, which had the following leaders in 1928. The chairman, Walter von Molo, was not a Jew. Vice chairman, Arnold Zwieg, was a Jew. First secretary, Paul Gutmann, a Jew. Assistant secretary, Frau Adele Schreiber-Krieger, a Jew. Treasurer, Dr. Leon Zietlin, a Jew. Assistant treasurer, Dr. Theodore Boner, a non-Jew. So that's two non-Jews. Board members, Eric Barron, Jew. Johann Becker, non-Jew. That's three. Robert Brewer, Jew. Dr. Max Derry, a Jew. Dr. Annie Jacker, a Jew. Sammy Groneman, a Jew. Egon Erwin Kish, a Jew. Dr. Alfred Kuhn, a non-Jew. Bruno Schonlang, a Jew. And Paul Westheim, a Jew. So out of maybe 15 names, maybe four of them were not Jews. Another column 
in the account of Jewish deeds is the propaganda for the abolition of paragraph 175 of the legal code, which penalized homosexuality. This too was demanded by the protocols as a way of corrupting non-Jewish youth. The Jew Magnus Hirschfeld had worked in this area long before the war. He created the Scientific Humanitarian Committee, an organization of homosexuals, I'd rather say sodomites, that spread throughout Germany, as his papers clearly prove. Even before the turn of the century, it had offices in Berlin, Hamburg, Munich, and the Rhineland. These cells recruited doctors, attorneys, and even clergymen who supported the Jew Hirschfeld and gathered lists of names for petitions to relevant government offices. During the post-war period, this organization that was founded and led by Jews had absolute freedom, meaning in the Weimar Republic. There was a press for homosexuals, and in one of their periodicals, Friendship, the following sentences could appear unhindered, without in any way being restricted by the Constitution. And they quote from Das Freundschaftsblatt, or the Friendship newspaper, I guess. The homosexuals. These people hope that over the years the government and people will finally realize that the legal paragraph should be eliminated and that all Germans should enjoy the same rights. Don't ask me how that works. Besides that public mockery of the German people, the Jew Willie Hoshes, the literary world, printed the following propaganda for homosexuality between women on the occasion of the Max Reinhardt Goldman's premiere of Gefangenen by Bourdais, which treated homosexuality, another filthy theater production. Two men speak in one scene about a lesbian drama that presumably takes place behind the scenes. When will we see, finally, a play in which this love itself, its uniqueness, its psychology, its different language, the dialogue of an eroticism foreign to men, receives serious literary treatment above all the hopeless alienation of the man against this unapproachable, incomprehensible relationship that would certainly be new material for our theater, which needs new material. The Literary World, 1926 number 24-25. Closely connected to the battle against paragraph 175, the law against sodomy, is the subversive Jewish effort against paragraph 218, which forbids abortion. Here too, the Jew Magnus Hirschfeld was a leader in a crime against the German people. From the countless articles by Jewish authors, not to mention the actual crimes of Jewish doctors against budding life, we mention only the following, and it's a list of publications of articles published by these supposed Jewish doctors. By Jewish sorcerers would be a a, a better description. Abortion or birth control by Dr. Martha Rubenwolf. Storm against 218, the law, by Dr. Friedrich Wolf. And there's another German title here I'm going to translate as Child Welfare, Fruit Prevention, 
birth control. Fruit abortion. Some have translated that as the blessing of children, contraception, and abortion. By Dr. Fritz Brubacher. And another one simply titled Contraception by Magnus Hirschfeld. This overview of the culturally and morally subversive influence of the Jews is only a brief summary of the available material on several important points. It is enough to show that each point of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion about the corruption of non-Jewish youth has been more than fulfilled. The best way to measure the practical effects of this attack on the existence of a healthy German nation is to consider the judification of the medical and legal professions, the later of which is always ready to defend its racial comrades of other professions in court. In Berlin, the percentage of non-Aryan physicians on October 1, 1933 was 52.2%. This at a time when some Jews had already left Germany. The percentage for attorneys as of April 1, 1933 was 50.9%. On January 30, 1933, 28.4% of Berlin's judges and 15.1% of its state's attorney were of Jewish descent. And all of the things said here concerning Jewish theater, Jewish literature, and the medical and legal professions is corroborated in greater depth in Kurt Wiebe's pamphlet, Germany and the Jewish Problem, which we had presented in five podcasts here back in November of 2009. And there will be, we also have it in print there, and there will be the appropriate links supplied with this program. Continuing with our source, each point of the protocols could be handled in the same way. In Germany alone, there was enough material from the post-war period to prove the accuracy of the statements collected in the protocols of the elders of Zion. We will not cover further points simply because it would take far more space than is available in this introduction. To examine some statements in the protocols that would require lengthy historical research, other statements would require specialized scientific methods. In closing, however, we want to give just one more example of the Jewish hope for absolute world domination that always surfaces in Jewish literature and essays. The old Jewish hatred of the Goyim, familiar from the Talmud and the Skulkin Aruch, or Shulkin Aruch, and in the Jewish history from ancient times, is brought up to the modern era in the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, where it receives a political discussion of opportunities and prospects, and the so-called Shulkin Aruch is a Jewish book of laws written by a rabbi of the 16th century, but it is not recognized by all sects of Jewry. In spite of its lack of universal acceptance among Jews, Wikipedia claims that it is the most widely consulted of the various legal codes in Judaism. Together with its, with its commentaries, it is the most widely accepted compilation of Jewish law ever written. And of course, none of it's biblical, it's all Talmudic. 
our source continues and says that this Jewish hatred is manifested anew each day in the private lives of individual Jews. This form of Jewish hatred was especially expressed in novels during the post-war period, such as The Way to Zion, by Kurt Munzer and Alfred Lonsberger novel Asians. The American Jew Samuel Roth gives a classic example of the private expression of Yahweh's, referring to Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is actually the eternal enemy of the Jews, revenge on non-Jews in his book Now and Forever. It takes the form of a dialogue between him and Israel Zangwill. Reich's leader, Alfred Rosenberg, discussed it in his major speech at the Reich Party Rally in 1937. The following is a long quotation from this major Jewish pamphlet. And our translator, we have a copy of this pamphlet. Our translator has provided a link somewhere in this text to, well, in, in, in this last paragraph, to the copy at archive.org. This pamphlet is a rather long dialogue, and our source is quoting about two pages from it. What we really dislike this dialogue because it expects its readers to accept all of the Jewish lies concerning history and scripture, concerning ancient history and scripture, which we will address in our notes, but of course this is a topic that we could talk about interminably, forever. We will refute it briefly here. Roth in his part of this dialogue, and he's the major speaker in this section, says that they envy our intellectual leadership of Europe. And he's actually talking to Israel Zangwill, whose thought is Jew-born and Jew-bred. Europe not only thinks in Jewish terms, but all her enterprises are motivated by the personalities of Jews. Only once... For one trembling moment did the mind of Europe raise itself above the turmoil of its mental slavery in the rhythmic, sentimental meditations of Descartes. But not till the rise of Spinoza, Baruch Spinoza, did Europe achieve a philosophy, which is just, this is all just bullshit. Spinoza is at the heart of European thought. He prevented Descartes, who came before him, from becoming a prophet as he prevented Immanuel Kant, who came after him from becoming a lawgiver. As it was in the beginning, so it is still now. There is not a program, a sentiment, or a conviction a European can choose to follow, but he must follow a Jew, whether it be a Bergson, a Marx, or a Freud. And reading this invokes thoughts of the philo-Semite and Judaically concordant nihilist Friedrich Nietzsche, as well as Erasmus, Calvin, Luther for most of his early life, and nearly all, if not all, of the medieval alchemists, the humanists of the Reformation, and many others that had been friendly to Jews, or had obtained Kabbalistic educations from the Jews. Continuing with our source, and Roth's part of the published dialogue, He goes on to say, Why should not the intelligentsia of Europe hate us? Time and again we have humiliated them. We began by giving them Christianity, 
Now, this that's the real lie we're going to discuss, right? And for 2,000 years, they have been trying to live up to it. A continent full of savages loving plunder and thieving, exulting in rape and incest. They were saddled with a religion and joining them to love their neighbors as themselves. Those mountain chieftains with hidden daggers kept in readiness to strike. Those bands of idlers accustomed to hiring out their soldiery services at so much per day were advised to turn the other cheek. If they had only had the presence of mind, how they would have answered their Christian teachers. But the poor European has from time immemorial suffered certain periodical lapses of shyness in which it is difficult for him to deny anyone anything. In such a moment it is easy to make him believe that he is good and noble at nothing else. In such a moment Christianity was imposed on Europe and even though Europeans had not permitted themselves to be swung entirely out of their natural preference for pillage and brigandry this religion we foisted on them has confused their speech and freighted their treaties with vows they do not mean and cannot understand. And you know, we wonder how many wannabe David Dukes, how many pagan clowns swinging Thor's hammers around their necks, how many of these people read these words of this Jew and believe it? I'll bet more people, more racially conscious young American men have read the words of, the, of this Jew and believe them than have read their Bibles and believe them. And that's pretty sad. It shows just how far our people do follow the Jews and are persuaded by their crafty words and their lies. In part 23 of these Protocols of Satan, we discussed Jewish lies and motivations, which was really an expose of supposed Jewish truth-tellers, and how they use this technique as a gimmick, admitting to obvious truths that are already well-known, in order to help them promote even greater lies, which are far more damaging once they are accepted. Usually these lies depend on the absolute ignorance of those who read or hear them, like the modern neo-pagans and the David Ducalites, or Daisy Ducalites, Daisy Duke Acolytes. I'm making a contraction, right? Usually these lies depend on the absolute ignorance of those who read or hear them, and in this case the Jews had plenty of willing dupes. Christianity did not come from the Jews or from Judaism. Aside from Roth's having taken many New Testament statements out of context, something in which all of the denominational churches have followed the Jews, in truth, ancient Judea was a multinational province of the Roman Empire, consisting of Israelites, Edomites, and others. And the Jews are only now called Jews because they had subverted ancient Judea, assisting the Romans when they conquered the province from the true people of Judah in Jerusalem. So to say that Jews gave Europe Christianity is tantamount to saying that the mixed races in modern Egypt built the pyramids or that Turks in Athens built the Parthenon. 
The Old Testament depicts the ancient Israelites as an agrarian society which built a powerful kingdom based upon work and moral law. Then it describes how that kingdom was subverted by immoral characters and fell into decadence before it was destroyed. So the history in the Bible is the diagram for the same pattern we have seen in Western society these past few centuries. And the modern Jews, under different names, were the culprits then, just as they are the culprits now. The writings of the New Testament, the histories of Josephus, and the statements by Strabo and other ancient writers all prove that the Jews are not Israelites or Hebrews. For 300 years, according to the testimonies of Christian writings from the 1st century through the 3rd century, Paul of Tarsus, Tertullian, Minucius, Felix, and others, the Jews had persecuted Christianity. The Jews had instigated the Romans to persecute Christianity. And they did everything they could do to completely eradicate it from the face of the earth. When they failed and Europe ultimately turned to Christianity, the Jews sought out the Arabs and Turks and Mongols to try to destroy it from the outside. The original author of this introduction did not necessarily accept the boast of Samuel Roth, as we had seen his statement earlier that in the theater of the Weimar era, the Jews made a mockery of everything German and Christian that had not been possible up to that time. So the author is not accepting this bullshit from Samuel Roth. Continuing with our source and the lies of Samuel Roth, he goes on to say, but Christianity was only the first of a long series of Jewish enterprises, of which socialism is the culminating imposition. Instinctively, Europe is as much against socialism as she has been always against Christianity. So Roth is basically setting up a dichotomy where people have to accept capitalism because they're too stupid to understand that there's fake Jewish socialism and there's real socialism. Why are they gradually accepting socialism? Just like there's fake Jewish Christianity and there's real Christianity. Don't believe the lies of the Jews. Europe is simply living through one, through another one of her periods of shyness. But don't worry, Europe will soon recover. Only see what has just happened here in England. Why did the railway workers and longshoremen allow the government to starve the coal miners into submission? You held better and steadier jobs than we did during the war, so you can afford to strike. Was that not the substance of the reply to railway workers and the longshoremen to the appeal to the coal miners? Well, I'm certain that all three unions probably had Jewish union leaders. I tell you that just as Christianity has failed to make Christians of them, socialism will fail to make men of them. (coughs) Now, aside from the continued (coughs) lies concerning Christianity, here another great lie is promoted concerning socialism. Originally, socialism was not confiscatory of a man's produce. And the state did not have rights to the property of its people. What Roth means is Marxism. Just as the Jews perverted Christianity and the religion of the ancient Hebrews into Judaism, they have perverted socialism into Marxism. They have spread these lies successfully 
only because they have had the power of the press behind them for over 200 years and even before that. Continuing once more with our source in the lies of Samuel Roth. In the meantime, socialism and Christianity are abiding, irritating symbols of Europe's mental enslavement to Israel. When the Chestertons and the Bellocks talk of race purity and patriotism, they lie in their throats. They know that we are racially purer than they are. They know that we are better patriots than they are. It is their intellectual slavery which rankles in them. And once this is understood, we can afford to ignore them completely. And the only thing that has really shackled Europe is the lack of a good understanding of Hebrew and Christian scriptures and ancient history. And the idea that Jews are racially pure is another big lie. We have already seen the Jew, another Jew, Kurt Munzer, in his book, The Way to Zion, admit that the blood of the Jews is corrupt in a lie of his own where he said that all the races of Europe have corrupted their blood as we have, admitting the Jews had corrupted blood. But the Jews have never been racially pure. They were a collection of Edomite and Arab bastards whom the true people of Judah had subjected in the 2nd century B.C., but who sided with the Romans against the Judeans, against the true people of Judah, when Rome exerted herself to conquer the region towards the middle of the 1st century B.C. After that, the Edomites were made the local rulers of the kingdom under their Roman, under their new Roman overlords. And the true Judeans became the generally disenchanted, poor, and oppressed people depicted in the New Testament. Now to continue with our source, and Israel Zangwill is briefly involved in a dialogue, and he's portrayed as having said, Suppose I grant you our intellectual leadership. I do not think it is possible to deny it. Have not the Europeans leadership in everything else? In the conduct of great cities, in the arts, in military science that is having so much more than we have that I still do not see why they should be angry or envious. And now the dialogue switches back to Samuel Roth, who describes what seems like a script from some sick Jewish horror film. In fact, he must have went on to write for Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer after this. There will be Jews in Russia. This is Samuel Roth. It sure as hell ain't me. There will be Jews in Russia, in Germany, in Austria, and in Italy. But the greater number of the Jews will be massed in India, Persia, China, and all the neighboring countries. Jews will be spread plentifully without the East, which will float strange colored banners, fresh with triumph. The whole East will be alive with planning and with building. But in the midst of all this is a strange, a terrible man, who will arise the likes of whom has never been seen on earth, and he will go through the marketplaces of the East, and he will speak only a loathing of Europe. He will wander from man to man and from city to city, and his speech will be very scant and quiet, but something in his eyes will open up in their beholders great sluices of wrath, so that slowly, silently, desperately, his following will increase, and all with little clamor, all with little wagging of the boneless tongue. 
In time, this man will become leader of an enterprise of vengeance, which will start out modestly from Calcutta, but by the time it reaches Constantinople, it will number several millions of men carrying secreted in their clothes little yellow vials. Sweeping up the steps, their numbers will increase as by a miracle, and their great hordes will seem to darken the face of the earth. It sounds like he's been seriously misinterpreting the revelation. For six days and six nights, the world will remain in the grip of these dark forces, for it took six days for God to create the world. The Jew, I'm sorry, the yellow cloud will slowly descend in their midst, and breathing will become as painful as pulling nails from living fingers. This is a real sick Jew fantasy. A strange confusion will spread throughout the world during those dreadful six days. Having gone out for a stroll, a man will find on having reached the front door of his dwelling that he is legless. Sitting opposite a beautiful woman, he will find himself gone blind. The water in his cup will taste like foul blood. His bones will snap like dry twigs. The lives of the peoples of Europe will flow out of them, through the mouth, through the eyes, through the dense, undented skin, in streams of foul blood, wherever the strange man and his silent army will have passed through. In Russia, only sucklings and illiterates will be spared. The rest will make huge graveyards of Moscow and Petrograd. Of Poland and the Ukraine, he will make a howling in the wilderness. All the women in those countries will be put to shame before being killed as a reminder of what once happened to a defenseless people in their midst. A reference to the medieval pogroms, for which the Jews supposedly want revenge and for which they are destroying Europe now. The docks will spout foul blood where Danzig receives the sea. Of Belgium and Germany, he will make such a slaughterhouse that it will be necessary to build new and taller dikes around Holland, that the smell of the carnage might not befoul a country for which his outraged memory will have no terrors. I guess because Holland, basically, is from where the Jews launched themselves into England and Germany. Through France, he will sweep as a conflagration sweeps through a cornfield. Holland is being overrun with aliens today also, however. Except for the yellow vials, and that's the end of the quote from Samuel Roth, now and forever. Except for the yellow vials, which may in fact be replaced with the Korans of Islam, this, of course, seems like a macabre description of what is happening today, where Europeans cannot breathe and escape the smell of rotten kebabs and disgustingly pungent prayer oil. Back to our source and the author's assessment of this part of the dialogue from Now and Forever, where they say that this bloodthirsty desire for murder and revenge against non-perishable peoples meaning that he didn't consider the nations of Europe to actually be perishable, is constantly repeated in Jewish literature and novels, and in the most varied ways. It is frightening and revolting, but nonetheless a genuine and accurate picture of the eternal enmity Jews have against non-Jews. The statements and demands in the protocols are consistent with this well-nourished racial instinct, 
which, as we have seen from the effects of the Jews in Germany, unscrupulously and steadily works to oppose and destroy all existing values of the community, culture, justice, and morality. If we review once again these comments on the protocols of the elders of Zion, we must conclude that the thesis and facts proclaimed in the protocols and evidenced by the activities of the Jews in Germany have been fully proved. The Jews in post-war Germany have behaved consistently with what is written in the protocols. This conclusion has a large and pressing significance for all the cultured peoples of the world. They too must thoroughly study the Jewish question in their countries. At the moment, 1938, Germany is enemy number one of the Jews. It has freed itself from this poison in its racial body through the Nuremberg Laws. Each people and each country, however, must sooner or later defend itself against subversive Jewish activity. For us Germans, the memory of this time of subversion is only a warning. We have freed ourselves from the nightmare of Jewish dominance. In all other states and peoples, however, there is daily evidence of similar or identical Jewish subversion to be found. As long as they do not recognize and solve the Jewish question, the Jews continue to determine the fate of peoples. Just recently, the Bloom's French cabinet was 37.5% Judified. I thought Leon Bloom himself was a Jew. I'm pretty certain he was. So long will it be impossible to speak of peace between the peoples. For the future, therefore, and forever, for every country, there's a typo in the text, there were a few. I caught most of them. There is but one warning call to reason, which also includes a call to knowledge and defense. Peoples of the world, defend your holiest possessions. Those holiest possessions are, of course, blood, kindred, and soil. This concludes our presentation of Professor Bitwork's translation of the introduction to the 1938 edition of the official National Socialist publication of the Protocols of the Learned Elders of Zion. But before we close this evening, it must be stated that no presentation, no presentation of the Nazis and the Protocols would be complete without the words of Adolf Hitler, who discussed the Protocols briefly in Mein Kampf. And Hitler said in Volume 1, Chapter 11 of Mein Kampf, subtitled Race and People, the following about the Protocols. How much the whole existence of this people is based on a permanent falsehood is proved in a unique way by the Protocols of the Learned of the elders of Zion, which are so violently repudiated by the Jews. With groans and moans, the Frankfurter Zeitung repeats again and again that these are forgeries. This alone is evidence in favor of their authenticity. What many Jews unconsciously wish to do is here clearly set forth. It is not necessary to ask out of what Jewish brain these revelations sprang. But what is of vital interest is that they disclose with an almost terrifying precision the mentality and methods of action characteristic of the Jewish people and these writings expound in all their various directions the final aims towards which the Jews are striving. 
The study of real happenings, however, is the best way of judging the authenticity of those documents. If the historical developments which have taken place within the last few centuries be studied in the light of this book, we shall understand why the Jewish press incessantly repudiates and denounces it. For the Jewish peril will be stamped out the moment the general public come into possession of that book and understand it. And that's the end of our quote. And this is exactly what we have endeavored to do in this ongoing presentation of the Protocols of Satan. To compare what we know of our own history with the protocols, with the protocols themselves. And we are convinced that Hitler was right. Just like Henry Ford was right. Just like Sergei Nilis was right. The protocols are real and the Antichrist has already been ruling over Christianity. The collective devil described, or disguised, I'm sorry, as an angel of light. That concludes our presentation this evening. Yahweh willing, we will shall continue with these presentations of the protocols of Satan in the very near future. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is not a Jew, and he's not the God of the Jews. Thank you for listening, and good night. Mm-hmm.